0: Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of Bite-Sized Virtue. This is episode one of season seven. And no, that doesn't mean that I've been doing this for seven years straight, but it does mean that this is the seventh liturgical season that I've been doing these episodes for. And of course, there's two liturgical seasons during the year that I focus on, Easter and Advent. We are now into... The season of Advent, it started last Sunday. I'm recording this on Tuesday evening, so a little bit later than maybe I would have liked to started recording it. But, you know, that's sometimes how it goes when you have four kids and a busy life outside of the podcasting world. And outside of the world of Ultima, for that matter. But you know what? This is actually not a bad time to be recording the episode, because we've just kind of come off. So if you follow at UltimaDragons on Twitter, the person behind that account every year, usually in November runs through all of the virtue questions from the Ultima games. So these are of course where the questions like an Ultima 4, Ultima 6 would have uh, typified the character creation process. And so the person behind At Ultima Dragons runs through all of those questions, there's like 24 or 28 of them in total, and tabulates the results. And for like the third year in a row now, compassion has won out. The dragons overall tend to favor compassion above all the other virtues. I think it came down to compassion and valor this year. But what's interesting What was interesting was not so much the the polls itself or the the polls themselves or the results, but the discussions that emerged after each question was posted. Because in a lot of cases, especially, and I've highlighted this in previous seasons of Bite Size Virtue, especially with the virtue of honor, there's a lot of wordplay involved, and I think this really illustrates why, for me at least, you know, and because I still see you know a lot of people saying that the eight virtues became the secular principles by which, you know, they have tried to live their life. In fact, Lord British was talking about that on Twitter today, or yesterday, in fact, with some people. And, I mean, to be fair, you know, if the virtues have helped you, it have helped you as an organizing principle to shape your uh, moral sensibility, well, great, good for you. I, I'm actually nothing but happy for you. For myself, I've always found the virtues, though, a little bit mm, incomplete, because well, the, the questions really, the, the, the character creation questions really illustrate why that is. First off, the fact that the virtues often contrast each other, uh, or can even contrast each other. You know, ideally, if these are all truisms, if these are all noble principles that we should or could uh, organize and govern our lives by, there really shouldn't be that much internal contradiction to the whole system. You know, what is right shouldn't contradict what is right, ideally. Um, but more than that, it's the fact that a lot of the time when it comes down to, you know, the explanations we get for what the virtues mean, a lot of which come through these character creation questions, we see a lot of wordplay. And this is especially true of the virtue of honor, right? Because a lot of the questions surrounding the virtue of honor deal with doing things that are fundamentally immoral and actually oftentimes really, really horrible, right? We talk about, you know, honoring your oath to your king, even though that means in this particular case. Uh, covering up his crimes, but that's the word play involved because you know the concept of honor honor as a principle is different from the vernacular meaning of the word honor, which means you know simply to uh to carry out or or to uh to obey right there's There's two different things, and what came out in a lot of the discussions on Twitter that attended these questions was that you know in a lot of these cases where it came down to honoring an oath to cover up something horrible, the actual honorable thing would be to report the horrible thing that was done, even though that meant, you know, ratting out your king or ratting out your, your noble. But the actual honorable thing in, you know, the sense of the principle of honor would be to shed light on, the, on torture, on murder, or whatever the case may be, rather than cover it up. It's only, you know, because we're playing around with The meaning of the word honor. We're using different definitions at different times that we're able to present those questions in a way that, you know, make it seem like following the principle of honor means doing something or covering up something horrible. And I don't know, maybe I just realized that early on, saw that early on. I thought, you know, like this doesn't really, I don't know. But for whatever reason, you know, I've never really used the eight virtues as much of a touchstone for, you know, organizing, um, my own morality. But I like seeing those discussions. And like I say, I've talked about, you know, especially with the virtue of honor, I've talked about that in previous seasons of Bite Size Virtue. And I've highlighted that same problem is that, you know, what is actually honorable is not always what Ultima holds out as being the upholding of honor. It's also interesting to me that I'm recording this episode after coming back from my daughter's first reconciliation. Um, you know, an important step, certainly, in her faith development. But it's really got me—this is the other thing that I was thinking of all the time that I was watching these virtue questions play out, right? Because naturally, when you're presented as—when you're presented with the choice of choosing one virtue or the other in such a way that, you know, upholding one virtue might—and perhaps we could even say typically means violating another virtue— a question starts to emerge in my mind. And the question is, how do you get back? So within Catholic philosophy, within the Catholic tradition, reconciliation is that. It's the way back. Because obviously we have this moral law, which is given to us by God. And yet, of course, in our human imperfections, we sometimes find ourselves outside of that, to, to put it mildly. And reconciliation Confession, as it's also known, is kind of our way to to come back, right? Because sometimes we just we err. We're we're human and and making errors. Some sometimes even deliberate and considered errors, right? And and that's kind of the point. Like it's one thing to make mistakes. It's another thing to do something knowingly wrong, right? And it's those latter things, especially, that we call sins in again catholic and christian philosophy and within catholic philosophy you know when one does commit sin one separates oneself in some way from god and from the gift of redemption that god offers freely to all people and here's the you know, like here's the thing you know that's not a commentary on the power of god to redeem that's not a commentary on any limitation that god has in his ability to redeem us but it's a commentary on Just the level of respect that God has for us, which is to say that, you know, he respects us as agents capable of exercising our own will enough that if we choose to set ourselves outside of his gift of redemption, if we choose to separate ourselves from that, well, he'll honor that, even if it means that we march straight into hell. And that's a tragedy. It is. But that is... And, you know, like, this is true this is something I have to realize too as a parent is that sometimes being the loving parent means just letting your child make even a horrible mistake. Because if you just, if you work to stop and intervene at every single turn, sometimes that just produces even more rebellion, that just produces even more negative outcomes than just letting the mistake happen and helping your child come back from it. But anyways, reconciliation is... The way back. You know, okay, so we've made a decision to do something wrong. We have committed a sin and we've set ourselves apart from the gift of redemption that God offers. That's not the end. You know, in many respects, that's really just a beginning, a new beginning. And reconciliation is the next step. We go before the priest, we put our sins before the priest, freely admit them, we acknowledge our sorrow over them, we acknowledge our desire to do better, we receive forgiveness and usually penance as well, right And actually like even removing the religious aspects of that whole process, like if you think about it, that's what that's what the whole process of apologizing and being forgiven really entails, right You admit the wrongdoing, you commit to trying to be better, hopefully to never do it again you receive forgiveness but then usually there's something you do to make it up to the other person right it's that act of penance and i just can't help but wonder where is that in the eight virtues you know because in the catholic tradition there's nothing you can do really that can't be forgiven there's nothing you can there's nothing you can do there's no sin you can commit really um, with one notable exception that we don't need to go into right now because it's, you know, a very particular case. But there's one, there, there, there's nothing really that you can do that can't be brought to the priest, can't be confessed, can't be forgiven. And I, there's a point, too, of, you know, going before the priest, right? Because the priest represents two things. One, the priest represents Christ. We bring our sins to Christ through the person of the priest, And it is then, you know, Christ who takes our sins before God, offers himself up as the expiation for those sins. And through that, we are, you know, (laughs) once again bestowed the gift of redemption. But then also, the priest represents the community, right? And when we've committed a sin, rarely is it the sort of thing that only affects us. Oftentimes, sins do affect the wider community around us, even in ways that we don't necessarily realize. And so the priest kind of serves a dual role there, representing both Christ and the community. And it's important as part of the process of admitting what we have done and seeking forgiveness for it to approach both Christ and through Christ God and the community to be forgiven for what, whatever it is that has transpired. And like I say, I can't help but wonder where in the eight virtues is that? You know, if I am a paladin and I behave in a dishonorable way, what happens is... Is it just that that's it? And I'm I'm done. I'm not a paladin anymore. I'm not a follower of honor anymore. What's my way back? If I am a bard, or I'm a follower of compassion, and I behave, you know, just in a in a moment of in, you know, just heated passion, I do something that communicates just like utter disgust and despising someone. But then later, I realize, you know, well, I was just in a rage, and I shouldn't have done that. And I'm genuinely sorry for having done that. But what's my way back? Like, am I still within the fold of compassion? Am I still a bard? Or am I just, am I done? What's my way back? And those are kind of, you know, those are the questions that I keep kind of bubbling up in my head as I watched each of these virtue questions play out. Because we're never really given a clear answer in the Ultima series. There's only a couple of games that even really address the idea of, you know, citizens of a town acting in ways that are fundamentally contrary to the virtue of that town. Ultima 5 and then Ultima 9. And in both of those cases, it's a magical influence that's causing people to act unvirtuously. And so it's a magical solution that brings people back. And it's literally like flipping a switch, right? Either the Shadow Lord is in town or not. And if the Shadow Lord's in town, then people act one way. And if not, then they act the other way. In Ultima 9, either the column is still active or it isn't. If the column is still active, people act in one way. And if the column isn't active, then they act. In a different way. I think maybe what's a little bit different is that in ultimate nine, of course, people are, they express regret, right? Like they're more cognizant of the fact that they were acting in a way that it was against the core virtue of their town. And so when the column is, you know, shut off, and they are liberated from its effects, they're penitent, right? They they kind of some of them are at any rate, and they kind of just like, Oh, my gosh, like, really? Oh, wow. Um, I guess we did that. That's awful. Uh, the mayor of Britain, I think, maybe being the the best example of that, also maybe the most on the nose example, but still, and and yeah, I, I I can't think of an answer given in any of the other Ultima games as to you know what happens when. I stray from the path of virtue. What's my way back? Is there a way back? Or am I just kind of, that's it, and I'm done. And maybe I can move on to being a follower of another virtue, but I'm not coming back to the virtue that I had previously upheld. You know, am I am I a coward forever? Or was it just a momentary thing in the heat of battle and I can continue to be a fighter? I can continue to be a follower of valor. I don't know. And Ultima doesn't really give us much of an answer. And I think maybe too, you know, if I think about it, like in in particular, like if I think about the way that, you know, Batlin approaches, um, the questions he poses to the avatar, when you talk to him for the first time, I think maybe it's this, you know, maybe this confusion over, you know, well, what happens if I am this, uh, or what happens if, you know, I had previously been this, and then I do not this, uh, you know, like what's my path forward now? Am I still this or not? It almost seems like Batlin in some ways plays on that, you know, with the way that every time you answer one of his questions, he twists it into something negative. It's like he's sort of playing up this fear that, you know, oh my gosh, like, you're right. Regardless of what I've done, I've done something horrible. Regardless of what I've done, there's a problem there. And what's the solution? Well, I mean, Batlin's solution is obviously um, subjugation by the Guardian vis-a-vis ditching the virtues entirely for the philosophy articulated by the Fellowship, which maybe isn't the most ideal, or really not ideal at all. But again, we don't really have an answer outside of, you know, well, I mean, uh, if you were all acting not compassionately, that's because the Guardian built that huge column over there and I went in there and shut it off. That's not a satisfactory answer either. And I don't think the eight virtues really give us an answer one way or the other. So, you know, if anything, maybe I'd be interested to hear people's thoughts. What's the path back after you have stepped off the path of virtue and want to get back on it? What's your way back? If you've behaved dishonorably, how do you regain that honor? If you've behaved cowardly, how do you regain your valor? Question for the audience. And there you go. This is really actually just an introductory thing. Um, I actually want to explore something I talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast, which is, of course, the internal contradiction of the eight virtues and why I think that is such a darn problem. And we're going to be looking at a Greek concept called the unity of virtues. But more on that in later episodes. For now, I'm going to sign off. Thank you for listening. Happy Advent. I hope it's a season of, well, if not joyous preparation for... Christmas in a liturgical sense, then at least, you know, a season of anticipation for the opportunity to be with friends or family, the opportunity to, you know, share in some of the warmth and the joy that hopefully attends the season for you. And uh, that is all I have for now. So until next time, be virtuous.